Book Two, Chapter Fifteen of Lady Bridget in the Never Never Land by Rosa Praed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirsty. A little later, McKeith, having tubbed and changed his riding clothes, came to his wife's room. He looked very large and clean and fair, and the worst of his temper had worn off in a colloquy with Ninnis and the imparting and receiving of local news. But his eyes were still gloomy and his mouth sullenly determined and he had remembered with remorse that he should have softened to Bridget the sudden news of her friend's death, the sight of her now, a small tragic figure with a white face and burning eyes, in a black dress into which she had changed, deepened his compunction. "'I'm very sorry, Biddy.' He tried to put his arm around her shoulder, but she drew back. "'What are you sorry for, Colin? That Rosamond Tallant is dead, and that you forgot to tell me, and let me hear it from Willoughby Maul?' She paused perceptibly before pronouncing the Christian name. Or that you behaved like an inhuman monster to those wretched blacks and refused me the only thing I have asked you for a good time past. Her tone roused his rancour anew. I think we'll drop the subject of the blacks. There is no earthly use in talking about them. I make it a rule never to threaten without performing, and I'd punish them again, just the same, or more severely, under similar circumstances. Very well. You will do as you please, and I shall do as I please too. What do you mean? Just what I say. I agree with you that there's no use in discussing things about which we hold such different opinions. Quite simply, I can't forgive you for this afternoon's work. Biddy, you exaggerate things. Perhaps. But I don't think so in this case. Let me go out, Colin. Dinner must be ready by now. No, I've got something to ask you first. I want to know why you looked so upset, as if you were going to faint, when that man came up to you today. Naturally, I was startled. I had no idea he was in Australia. But why should that have affected you? One might have imagined he had been your lover. Was he ever your lover, Biddy? I must know. And if he had been, do you think I should tell you? She answered coldly. McKeith's face turned a dark red. His eyes literally blazed. That's enough, he said. I shall not ask you another question about him. I am answered already. He stood aside to let her pass out into the veranda, and she walked along to the sitting-room. Dinner went off, however, more agreeably than might have been expected. Lady Bridget's manner was simple and to the guest charming. The black dress, the touch of pensiveness, was in keeping with the shadow of tragedy. But she spoke in a natural way, and with tender regret of Lady Talent, questioning Maul as to when he had last seen her and learning from him how it had been at Rosamond's instigation that he had cabled, proposing himself as a companion in Sir Luke's loneliness. It had been only a week after his arrival in Leichardt's town that the blow had fallen. "'You know Talent and I always hit it off very well together,' he observed explanatorily, addressing McKeith. "'It was at their house that I used to meet Lady Bridget during the few months that I had the honour of her acquaintance in England.' McKeith looked at his guest in a resentful but half-puzzled way. A spasm of doubt shook him. Suppose he had been making a fool of himself, insulting his wife by unreasoning suspicions. A vague contempt in her courteous aloofness had stung him to the quick, and the other man's easy self-assurance, the light interchange of conversation between them about things and people of which McKeith knew nothing, all gave the Australian a sense of bafflement, the feeling that these two were ruled by another social code, belonged to a different world in which he had no part. He had been sitting at the head of his table, perfunctorily doing his duty as host, wounded in his self-esteem, 
almost the tenderest part on him, morose and miserable. Now he snatched at the idea that he had been mistaken, as if it were a life-boy thrown him in deep waters. He began to talk, to assert himself, to prove himself cock of his own walk, and Maule suavely encouraged him to lay down the law on things Australian, while Lady Bridget withdrew into herself, baffling and enraging McKeith still more hopelessly. He did not seem now to know his wife. A catastrophe had happened. What? How? Why? Nothing was the same, or could be the same again. It was a relief when dinner was over. The men pulled out their pipes on the veranda. Lady Bridget, just within the sitting-room window, smoked a cigarette, her small form extended in a squatter's chair, listening to, but taking scarcely any part in the conversation. The two outside discussed local topics, McKeith's failure to trace the perpetrators of the outrage on his horses, Maul's impressions of Tunumburra, where he had met McKeith in the township hotel, and the two had, apparently, in the usual bush fashion, got on intimate terms, the rumours of an armed camp of unionists and the expected conflict between them, and the sheep-owners and free shearers at Breezer Downs, whither the government specials were bound. Lady Bridget gleaned that Maul had placed himself under McKeith's directions. "'What are your immediate movements to be?' he asked his host. "'Remember, I am ready to fall in with any plans you may have for making me useful.' McKeith did not answer at once. He took his pipe from his mouth and knocked the ashes out of it against the arm of his chair, while he seemed to be considering the question. Then, as if he had formed a definite determination, he leaned forward and addressed his wife in a forcedly matter-of-fact tone. "'I don't suppose you know much about what has been going on, Biddy. The same boat that brought up the specials brought a hundred or more free labourers, and they're on their way up to the different sheep stations along the river, a lot of them for Breezer Downs, where Windet has begun shearing. Windet is in a blue funk, because a report that a little army of unionists, all mounted and armed, are camped that way, and threatening to burn down his woolshed and sack his store. They burned old Duppo's woolshed last week. He's a skinflint, and I'm sure he deserved it, put in Lady Bridget indifferently. McKeith checked a dry sarcasm. He became aware of Maul's eyes turning from one to the other. Well, he got up and leaned his great frame against the lintel between Maul and Lady Bridget. The pastoralist executive at Tunumburra have asked us cattle owners, who are more likely to be let alone than the sheepmen, to help in garrisoning the sheep stations, and I've promised to ride over to Breezer Downs tomorrow and do my share in protecting the place. Harris and I are going together. Lady Bridget seemed more interested in blowing smoke rings than in her husband's news. "'I may have to be away several days,' continued McKeith. "'Then there's the new bore we're sinking. The water is badly wanted. Cattle are dying. I can't run any risk of the bore plant being wrecked. The men who are working there must be sent off because we're short of rations, thanks to those murderous brutes keeping back the drays. And the muster has to be stopped for the same reason. I won't answer for when I can be back.' As she made no answer, he asked sharply, "'Do you understand, Biddy?' "'Yes, of course. I have no doubt, Colin, that you'll find it all highly stimulating. And perhaps you'll be able to shoot somebody with a clear conscience, which will be more stimulating still.' "'Really, Mr. Moore, you are lucky to have come in for a civil war. I heard that in South America that was your particular interest. Do you carry civil wars about with you? Only, there's nothing very romantic in fighting for mere freedom of contract.' It seems so obvious that people should be free to make or decline a contract. I wonder which side you would take. Her levity called forth an impatient ejaculation from McKeith. 
"'I'm afraid in my wars it's generally been what your husband would consider the wrong side,' said Moore with a laugh. "'I've usually fought with the rebels.' "'Then you'd better not go to Breeza Downs. You'd better stop and fight for me,' exclaimed Lady Bridget. "'That's just what I was about to propose your friend should do,' said McKeith, in hard, deliberate tones. He looked straight at his wife, shoulders and jaws squared, eyes like flashing steel under the grim brows. The expression of his face gave Bridget a little sense of shock. She raised herself abruptly, and her eyes flashed pride and defiance, too. "'How very considerate of you, Colin, if Mr. Moore likes to be disposed of in that way. He is to be allowed freedom of contract, I presume, although the shearers are not.' "'You needn't be afraid that I shall strike, Lady Bridget,' laughed Moore. "'It will suit my general principles to keep out of the scrimmage. I don't know anything about the rights and wrongs of your labour question, but I confess that, speaking broadly, my sympathies are usually rather with labour than with capital.' "'Capital!' echoed Keith derisively. "'It's blithering irony to talk of us Lura squatters as representing capital. We're all playing a sort of battledore and shuttlecock game, tossed about between drought and plenty, boom and slump. A kick in the beam and one end is up and the other end down.' There's Windet, who will be ruined if his woolshed is destroyed and his shearing spoiled. No rain, and the banks would foreclose on most of us. Take myself. Two years ago the skies were all smiling on my fortunes. This last year it's as if the hosts of heaven have a down on me. The stars in their courses fought against Sisera, murmured Lady Bridget. I'm Sisera, am I? He gave her a fierce look and crossed to the veranda railing, where he began cutting tobacco into the palm of his hand. Well, there is something in that, but the stars have never licked me yet. Sisera was a coward, or they wouldn't have downed him. Ah, but there was Jael to be reckoned with, put in Maul softly. Jael? McKeith plugged his pipe energetically. The more fool Sisera for not giving Jael a wide berth. He should have gone his way and kept her out of his affairs. A hard little laugh rang from the depths of the squatter's chair. Moore got up and strolled into the sitting-room, where he seemed engrossed in the pictures on the wall. Just then, Kaji, the black boy, held McKeith from the front of the steps. "'That fellow Pollis wanting massa. He sit down longer, old humpy.' "'All right.' McKeith looked into the parlour. "'My wife will entertain you, Maul. I dare say you've got plenty to talk about. I'll see you later.' Presently they heard him outside speaking to the police inspector. "'Come into the office, Harris, and have a smoke and a glass of grog.' End of Book 2, Chapter 15